Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 66th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And of course, it's the 16 days of action against gender-based violence, spanning across 16 days from the 25th of November to the 10th of December, which encompasses World AIDS Day on the 1st of December, and of course, International Human Rights Day on the 10th of December. The 16 days of action were started by activists at the inaugural Women's Global Leadership Institute in 1991, and continues to be coordinated each year by the Centre for Women's Global Leadership. Talking about sexual violence can feel like a big taboo subject, and we do need to keep talking about this at work. You might think it's not that common, but actually, in workplaces, we absolutely need to talk about domestic and sexual violence, how workplaces can recognise and support employees who are experiencing domestic and sexual abuse and what they can do about it. All businesses and workplaces in the UK have a legal obligation to assess dynamic risk, as well as support the health and safety and wellness of their employees. Organisations can and should be training everyone to recognise the signs, even in a remote situation at a distance, and support those who witness and experience domestic and sexual violence and create a culture where it's okay to talk about these subjects. And here are some statistics to put the topic into context. And no doubt these statistics will have changed during this year, during the pandemic. But one in four women are affected worldwide by domestic violence during their adult lifetimes. 58% of women who experience abuse miss at least three days of work per month. 2% of women will lose their jobs as a result of domestic and sexual violence. 5% of men experienced domestic violence in England and Wales last year, that's actually 2018. And 75% of people who experience domestic violence will actually be targeted at work. And the annual cost to companies is thought to be around 2 billion. And that's to say, you know, through lost productivity, through staff being ill, through them being unwell, um, potentially legal and court cases, and if they're not supported, how workplaces may lose money through that. But that shouldn't be the focus, of course. The focus needs to be on the member of staff. And as I mentioned, I'm sure these stats have worsened or the gap's been exacerbated due to the COVID-19 restrictions, the underfunding of specialist services and culturally sensitive and appropriate support. So to join me this year in talking about this further is Manny Hare. Manny is a freelance ghostwriter. She has set up her own business, writing books for others and sharing their stories. Manny is a northerner, now living in the Midlands for the past three years, and she's very vocal about issues that affect South Asian, particularly women, and the issues South Asian women face in the community. Manny had an arranged marriage and experienced sexual abuse and depression. She's very open and very candid about her journey. Having networked extensively in Birmingham, she's now a trustee for RSVP, which stands for Rape and Sexual Violence Project, based in Birmingham. And she's a newly appointed committee member for the Asian Business Chamber of Commerce, which is how we met. And she worked there up until a year ago. And the last eight months for Manny have been a real roller coaster. She's been made redundant, landed another job during the pandemic. She then quit that job to pursue full-time writing. And she's also now just been offered a role with Solihull Council, helping high street retailers through the crisis. So it's certainly not been a boring three years. And I'm really excited to have Manny on the show to talk about this topic that's dear to both of our hearts. So Manny, a huge welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Layla. No worries, because you have been through quite a year. So how are you now? How is your writing, your business? And also, how has it been helping high street retailers during lockdown 2.0? Yeah, it's. It, I have had a bit of a turbulent year. I think somebody asked me, I had a catch-up call with somebody this morning, and they asked me how my year had been. And taking away some of the the mental stress that I've had. Luckily, I haven't had anyone near me who's been affected by COVID or passed away or anything like that. So in 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 a nutshell, my year has actually been pretty good considering I lost my job, got another job, left it, and then got this job <laughs> at mm. Solihull Council. And um, my job is part of the whole reopening High Street Safely campaign and funding that they have. Um, it was going out to retailers, speaking to them. Um, you may have seen like, people with um, socially distanced stickers and floor signs and things like that. And that's part of what the council is supplying to those businesses, um, making sure they're compliant and just sort of giving them general support and guidance in in anything COVID related. And it's a weird one because this mm-hmm. job would not have existed if it wasn't for COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's almost like, I'm grateful, but also it's come out of something that's been horrendous for the whole world if that makes sense yeah but Manny you know it absolutely has but Manny you are the queen I think of turning (laughs) around you know negativity into something really productive and something actually quite beautiful and you know thank you so much for your time because we're going to be talking about the 16 days of action um, for sexual violence and so one of the things I wanted to ask you was what do the 16 days mean to you especially given that you've been really open about your own journey and what's happened to you yeah, I think, um, I think like you say, I've been very open about my own journey um, uh, from when I was married and, and, and going through marital rape, but it's it's a weird one. So for me, I tend to, this isn't, while I have shared this story, it's not a story, story that I share very often, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm probably more, mm-hmm. more prone to supporting the voices of people who have suffered. Um, and I, I tend to talk more about the mental health side of things because I think what happened to me had an impact on my mental health and and, and finding out what my triggers are so sometimes for me it's not necessarily about the act but what happens after Mm. and and people getting that help and support that they need and I've had a very turbulent time with triggers over the last three years and 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 stuff that I'd buried for a good decade uh, that came to the surface so I'm I'm quite, I guess I'm quite vocal. Um, you said some really nice things. So thank you for that. Um, but I don't, it's weird. Like, I don't think I'm, I'm anything particularly special. I guess if there's something to be said, I say it without fear of retribution. And I wonder if that's part of growing up uh, away from a, a group, uh, like, I guess growing up, um, outside of the South Asian community where mm-hmm. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like I would have that judgment passed on me if I said anything um yeah there was some judgment you know obviously your parents you know they raise you in a certain way and they're a little bit strict but I think once I left him and I started to go on my own path and I created a bond with my parents I was a bit more vocal about how I felt about things that bothered me about injustices that I I'd seen and actually writing my blog I think helped a lot of women um, whether they came forward publicly or not, that wasn't the point. But the fact that they felt that they could reach out to me because I could understand um, what they um, mm. what they had been through themselves. And it was just, it was so sad to hear from women who had suffered what I had suffered. Um, and But they stayed with their partners or their abusers for this mm. expectation that you have to just kind of get on with it. 
in the South Asian community. And I know not everybody is like that, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it just causes issues. And I guess for me, I, I guess I felt liberated. Like I finally found my voice and I was finally telling my story the way I wanted to tell it without being dictated to, without having to, I guess I, I just stopped caring about judgment from people who knew me. I mean, I'm such a massive people pleaser, so I do care what people think, but I guess you can, you're a little safe online when you share things or you feel a little safer. Mm. Does that make sense? Like, I didn't think I was, yeah, I didn't think I was doing anything particularly revolutionary. And plus my parents and my family aren't on the social media channels that I'm sharing to. So maybe I use that as a way of hiding a little bit, like, and being more vocal because I knew they wouldn't see it. That that's yeah that's fascinating and I, I hear you as well because I didn't grow up in the South Asian community at all either and I think um, as lonely and as and as horrible as it was at times you know experiencing what you know what we have and I don't know about you Manny but sort of very subtle and not so subtle racism that I experienced yeah. but it does mean that you're not sort of beholden and I'm going to use the word beholden in the same way so yeah that, that thank you for for saying that um and yes that that sort of tension between being a people pleaser and needing yeah. to find it and use your voice so I think yeah. that's one of the most important things yeah. and so do you, do you feel that these 16 days I mean and of course we need to be talking about sexual violence 365 or 366 days depending on if it's a leap year but um do you feel that this can really be a kickstart you mentioned women talking to you from reading your blogs and, and the work that you do do you think this can really kickstart people into taking action whether they're a survivor themselves or whether they want to support people more effectively oh no absolutely and I think just from experience um, over the last three years uh, since I wrote that blog so publicly about my arranged marriage I've been more confident in using certain language and words and telling people about what happened to me but I the reaction I get is palpable like how uncomfortable I make people Mm. feel in real life it could be men, women, you know, from different ethnic minority backgrounds. And I, I do make them uncomfortable with just how blasé I am about it. And that the fact that I just say it as it is. Um, and I do think um, this 16 Days of Activism is a step towards talking about it publicly. Um, and it's and, and highlighting real issues that people face. Like, I'm very open about how I think say for instance mental health awareness day has just become a hashtag for a lot of people they want to be seen to be Mm -hmm. um woke i guess in and caring about mental health but when you when you get down to it and when you work for organizations there's very little that's being done other than a a social media campaign and i i guess first step is awareness and social media is great for that but sometimes you don't want to be a keyboard activist and you need to take that next step to actually make a change and open dialogue and Yes, it's uncomfortable and it's horrible, but so is life and people are actually going through this. So no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel to hear it, somebody has lived this, you know, and I guess you just owe them that respect to listen to them and be open to to conversation no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. Yeah, and that's the thing. Last year, so Katie Russell, who works for Rape Crisis uh, England and Wales and is also one of the founders of Sarsville Sexual and Rape Crisis um, Violence uh, in Leeds, she said exactly the same thing. She said, you don't know what to say. We don't always have the words, but it's about that listening. And I, you know, one of the reasons personally, I don't have evidence for this, but that I think rape crisis charities in the UK do not receive enough money is because of the word rape. Because people find it gross, they find it icky, they find it uncomfortable, they find it unpalpable, they find it unbelievable, or whatever other reason there is, and just how underfunded they are. Oh no, absolutely. And it's the same with RSVP. Luckily they've they've 
they're, they're okay this year. They've got a lot of funding. So RSVP is the Rape and Sexual Violence Project, a, a local charity in Birmingham City Centre that I'm a trustee of. Um, and they, they've been... They've been okay throughout the pandemic, but we know how hard it has been for them, the councillors, and obviously trying to reach the people that they support and, and need that, that that help and guidance. Um, but yeah, so I just think the word, I didn't even use the word rape in my original blog because I didn't want to make people uncomfortable. And then I realised that all I'm doing is just, I guess, adding to the problem slightly because if I can't use that word, then it means I'm not quite, ready to admit that that happened and also it, it just means that I feel like then I'm protecting other people mm. from the horror of that and at the end of the day if you don't use the language for something that's been done then you're just you're always just going to be um like walking on eggshells and walking and, and talking around the issue as opposed to dealing with it head on um and so I'm, I'm much more comfortable using that word I know it makes people uncomfortable um but these are people need to be made to feel uncomfortable and you're right mm -hmm. anytime I mention that I'm a trustee for RSVP I, I then tell them what what RSVP stands for and you can almost instantly feel that like tension you know from the mm -hmm. word rape mm -hmm. um, I think sexual violence um people are okay with that term it makes them less uncomfortable I don't know why but the word rape is just I think so stigmatized mm -hmm. and I think people will always, and this is just from my experience, people will always, once they know this has happened to you, almost treat you like a victim. It's like, I don't need your pity, but dude, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. this happened to me when I was quite young. I was 23. I have managed to deal with it. I don't see myself as a victim um, or, or maybe a survivor. Yes, but I just don't see how you finding out about it now is going to have any bearing on what it has on, on what it means to me does that make sense like yes it's mm -hmm. new for you to hear about this but I've lived through this for the last 14 years and I'm okay with it I'm just telling you something in black and white that this happened I'm not going to pussyfoot around the issue just to make you feel comfortable because I think that then just delays the conversation that needs mm -hmm. to be had uh, around um you know people who have been through it and it delays that open dialogue that we need to have with people, with businesses and with support groups and, and definitely with charities who need, that, support, need mm. that help. And Manny, how did you become a trustee for RSVP? So, um, and I asked this question because maybe people are listening to this thinking, yes, that's what I want to do. I want to be a trustee of a rape crisis charity or a sexual violence charity, domestic violence charity. Um, did you apply? Like what was your route in to become a trustee and how's the experience been for you? Uh, yeah, so my route was quite organic. Um, I was at a networking event uh, when I worked for the Chamber of Commerce. And it was a nice sunny day and I met a fellow, I met a trustee for RSVP. And because since I'd moved to Birmingham from up north, um, it was kind of something in the back of my mind I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to, I wanted to find out more about charities in the local area, specifically around rape and sexual violence. Uh, because um, Carmen Ivana had contacted me from up north when I wrote my blog and I wasn't ready yet to be involved in a very physical sense. Um, so when I met this particular individual, he introduced me to the CEO, Lisa Thompson, and had a meeting with Lisa, but I also had a, a work meeting with her to join the chamber and it sort of mutual and got to know her. And I just sent her my blog and she, it was very organic. And she's just said, look, 
apply to be a trustee like applications are open now for this year we're looking for people and because of my networking business marketing acumen I think there was a need for that within the uh, within the board um and it was just yeah I applied for it it was quite organic got invited to the AGM and then a couple of board meetings where you then um you're almost like voted for like for them if they want you on the board or not and it's been it's been a good experience I think I've learned a lot Oh, um, I'm definitely getting to know more about the charity and like the inner workings of what it's like to be a board member um, mm. and and just connecting with them and able to help them sort of see things in a different way. I sort of encourage them to join organizations, to apply for awards so businesses were aware of them because funding can only last so much. And if you don't, if you're not guaranteed funding from other sources, then then do network with businesses so they can help you and get get your name out there. And they've been around for 40 years. Um, and I, I helped recently, I think at the beginning of the year before lockdown, we were recruiting for new trustees. Um, and that was quite fun. That was quite nice to be part of um, and, and just little projects and things that we're doing on the side. And I guess for me, it's just a learning experience. And I've shared my story with them. They Lisa reached out to me um, to see if I would be happy and willing to share my blog on their website. Uh, which I was more than happy to do. I'm much more, I'm much happier to share my story when it's in written format than mm-hmm. as if I was to go on camera and share mm-hmm. it because I'm still a little uncomfortable with that. But that's more to protect, I think, my family than anything else. Yeah, but you're also a writer, so I'm not. I'm not. I'm not usually surprised to hear that. Whereas, whereas for me, this is why I'm so into the podcast, Manny, because it's all about the voice, and I don't have to write. And that's why people want to use my words. People like me need people like you. Um, And then thinking about you know diversity, diversity of trustee boards as well. So we, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but you know, I followed hashtag Charity So White, and there's been a lot of discussion yeah. particularly following yeah this this particular movement of black lives matter in june 2020 mm-hmm. and thinking about mental ill health um, that as a result of sexual violence rape or domestic violence and culture and we've been talking a little bit about from our south asian backgrounds you know even though we have we're south asian we have slightly different cultural um, backgrounds but what do you think are the biggest challenges for south asian women um, in accessing support and even south asian men who may be in a same-sex relationship um mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and they, they are uh, survivors of um, any kind of sexual violence. I think for me personally, I think more and more people are coming forward, but not as many as I guess we would like. And the other thing is, I think from a personal viewpoint and what I believe is that the, we are so conditioned as South Asians just not to talk about anything and just to internalise our trauma that reaching out for help is is not something that comes easily or naturally to us. I'm a massive speaker and talker and I will rant on Twitter like there's no tomorrow, but it took me 13 years, no, it took me over 10 years to get help counseling for my trauma. Um, And people deal with it in different ways, but I genuinely do think that it comes with this internalized, oh, um, don't, don't speak about it. This whole nuzzin, I love Jay, you know, don't get the evil eye. If you talk about it, if you talk about it, then bad mm-hmm. things will happen. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's all these weird superstitions and, and, and conditioning that we had as children. And I think this has just been passed down from generation to generation. Um, I think slowly my generation is maybe breaking out of it, but then I, I don't think it's people breaking out of it fast enough. And there's almost like this shame um, of getting help. Uh, it's almost like well it's happened now just put it behind you and, and move on and deal with it and then that just I think just leads to problems further on in in your life if you don't 
talk about it and deal with it. And as someone who has trust issues, myself personally, it took me a long time to find someone I trusted enough to, to speak to. Um, I mean, the people who follow me on, online will know that I am quite vocal about how I feel. Um, I, I wrote a post um, in around BLM about how South Asians are quite, quite um, I guess, hypocritical when it mm-hmm. comes to supporting support supporting that movement, especially when within our culture, we colorism is a huge thing, and we also have been raised not to mix with black people like that is just how some of us have been raised like you can be friends with them but you can't marry them or or mingle with them or do anything like that so I just felt and so I I talk I'm happy to post stuff like that but there is there is this element of like oh maybe you shouldn't say this you know so and so is not gonna like it or this organization's not gonna like it and I just think you know what I really don't care Mm. um if it needs to be said I'll say it and again I'm a writer so I can write it in a way that will will sort of you know <laughs> hit home get my point across and hopefully because I'm quite an emotive writer so hopefully get that emotion across as well um and yeah I just I it's it's been surprising how many women have reached out to me and told me their story but they'd be reluctant to tell it publicly so I guess there's an element of trust because the fact that I've done it the fact that I've been so vocal about it I guess they see me as someone they can trust to tell that story but I also have to be very wary of how much information I take in because I'm still dealing with my own trauma like and I'm such an empathetic and sympathetic person and I I I have you know there was a period in my life a few years ago where a lot of people were telling me things and it got too much for my own mental health mm. and I'm not a counsellor I'm just someone who's very vocal about how I feel and what works for me um you know and sometimes I think people who are well-meaning will who aren't, who aren't qualified counsellors and they hear your story and they say something can inadvertently make things worse. And I don't want to be that person because I don't know the depths of someone's, mm. someone's trauma. And so what do you think could we, you know, could society as a whole, and you mentioned some of the things, you know, from a South Asian female perspective, but how could we encourage people to access support? And one of the things for me is that we need more people who are trained in counselling and psychotherapy and other other methods of healing so storytelling but storytelling in a therapy capacity for example that's more culturally appropriate and often um to to, you know to be available and that's a long game but in the meantime what are some of the things you think we can do um to encourage people to step forward from south asian community and get and get help i think it's knowing um or trusting people enough to sort of say look i need help and then sign and signposting them to organizations or counselors that are going to understand um so my first set of group therapy was with a south asian woman but the 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 counselors who'd led the therapy were black um and now i'm doing one-to-one counseling and the counselor is south asian and now it's i'm not saying like you know don't go to somebody of a different you know don't go to a white therapist or a black one or whoever but there's something comforting in going to somebody who has the same background as you that they are going to understand at a deeper level without you having to say much, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can say something about my upbringing. I can use language like, you know, from my grandparents and aunties and uncles that I would use rather than referring to them as auntie and uncle. I can use the, the Punjabi words that mm-hmm, I would use mm-hmm. for them. And it's, it's knowing that there is someone there who understands from a cultural point of view why the pressures that you feel are there because I think sometimes when um and I'm the eldest of three 
I think sometimes speaking to a non-Asian counsellor, they're not necessarily going to understand the, the hidden or unspoken pressure that is on you as a child, uh, you know, from immigrant parents. Mm. And um, I think more signposting towards sort of, you know, Asian or South Asian therapists or counsellors or mental health um, experts. And there are so many out there and there are so many platforms where you can find those. Um, and I guess it's just, and to be fair, I think if you want the help, you can find it. It's just being able to take that first step um, and being, does that make sense? Like I, I knew I needed help, but it took me yeah. a long time to get it. And then I, I, I went out of my way to find it where I knew I needed it um, and, and knew who to follow. I knew who to maybe kind of navigate that conversation with, but I've worked in Birmingham. I've worked for, for large organizations that are predominantly white and there's nobody internally that could understand my struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think more also needs to be done internally in organizations as well about how that can, and not just even from the South Asian community, like, you know, um, your colleagues who are black, who are going to, um, and they'll have gone through a lot this year with BLM, like how much, how much are they, how much support are they getting? Mm-hmm. And, and not just, you know, again, not just jumping on another hashtag and, and being shown, being seen to be doing something, but actually doing something as well. Yeah, completely. I, I totally agree with you about the hashtag. And you mentioned it before, like it's not mental health is not just a hashtag. Yeah. Um, it, it's much more than that. And and I really hear you. I mean, I, I've always, um, d- you know, done a lot of work with bl- black women because I feel like black women do understand. And I also feel that there's a different mindset that I've always found really, really helpful. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so thinking about that, I think one of the things is when someone feels really unwell and low mm-hmm. um, and Rapinda talked about this, actually, when when in the in her podcast about creating safe cultural spaces yeah. that you often don't know what's going to help you Um, and it takes a lot of energy to find this information so again if we can all be sharing this constantly Mm -hmm. when someone does hit that low and they don't have the energy to look the information's there so I think um, we all have a responsibility to think about culturally competent services for everyone yeah no absolutely and I've um, I've said this to Rabinda as well like I've never really bonded with Asian women (laughs) like it's it's not outside of my family and I've said this to Rapinda before, so in, in joining that group was a real big step for me. And I think mostly because I have such respect and love for Rapinda and the energy that she that she has. And then to be part of this sisterhood and, and just, you know, feel like you are being heard and that, you know, um, that there are people who get you and there are yeah. people who understand who, who themselves have probably never view, aired their views in the way that you have, if that makes sense. Or somebody says something and it instantly yeah. becomes recognisable. And I think having that safe space and having that knowledge that somebody does understand and gets it. And, and like you say, it works. Like whenever I would um, feel triggered or pressured by something or somebody would make a joke and it would just bother me in some way, how then do you explain that without making yourself look like you're some sort of drama queen and you know or you're so sensitive like why can't you have a laugh or what it's just banter blah 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 but there are trigger points that you don't realize that you have until someone says something or does something mm-hmm. and then trying to explain that this is something from your past or from the way you were raised or x y and z and people just not getting it um it can be really demoralizing and, and like you say yeah it can get really tiring looking for the help that you need and it is our responsibility as as women I guess um who are so vocal about certain things um to to keep sharing that message of support and like you know there are people out there and if you don't want to do it let me know 
and, and we'll we'll help guide you in the right direction, I guess. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Manny. And then building on that, really, what do you think workplaces can do to talk about sexual violence, rape and offer support to people who may have been victims and then are also survivors as well? Yeah, that's not something I've ever, ever seen in a workplace. I think yeah, you have, there was a big push on like diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and like mental health workshops and things like that, but not once has there ever been like a closed meeting or an email or something being sent around to internal staff to say, look, um, we are spotting those who are, who potentially maybe suffer from sexual violence, but are too afraid to come forward because it does impact your work. Mm-hmm. And it impacts, you know, your productivity and, and and stuff like this. And and I guess I guess organizations need to be comfortable having having the conversation and using the words that we've used today without and, and no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel, and, and speaking to charities that are local like RSVP, even you know, getting information from Rape Crisis UK, there's so much information out there and support. But I think it's a case of being proactive in finding the right counsellors. So RSVP obviously have counselling and training services. So they offer training to, to organisations and it's it's reaching out to them, getting them to come in and deliver workshops. And I guess that's step one. Um, and then moving on from there, having having internal workshops, I guess, or internal sessions where people feel like they can they can speak to somebody in a confidential manner. And I think that's the thing. People often, I think, for the workplace think, oh, well, this is a private matter. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, but also sexual violence can take place in the workplace. So I think that the I think developing a policy is absolutely essential, but of course policies don't sit shouldn't sit on the internet gathering metaphorical cyber dust. Um, yeah. they need to be live active things. So yeah, for me it's definitely about that acknowledging it. I mean, I had a really interesting discussion recently. I was doing a presentation at a lone worker conference and I said, Oh, I think every single organization should have a domestic violence and sexual violence policy. And it was kind of a little bit balked at. But I said, Well, if people are working at home or they're trying to work at home like you said it affects your work now if there's a threat of domestic and sexual violence in the home how on earth are you meant to do your job and you can't go anywhere and so as part of health and safety this is part of psychological risk assessment this is part of duty of care um it's not a you know a separate thing it's it it absolutely is integral and it's integral into equality diversity and inclusion because certain people are going to be more susceptible potentially those who have carers if someone has a disability that needs care or if they are actually the carer themselves they could be you know so there's so much more to it and I think it goes back to that intersectional thinking and that lens yeah no absolutely and I've and do you know it's weird and I don't know if it was because I knew I was I was doing this podcast with you today but I was thinking about my own experiences of um I guess I would say sexual harassment at work um from when I was younger and you almost laugh it off at the time because you're almost like well who do who am I to go and tell somebody like yeah. it'll be my word against yeah. theirs and 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 then I was just like and then in my head I started making a list of the encounters that I'd had with men that had made me uncomfortable mm. I'm like Jesus and I didn't even think I'd been subjected to it that much yes I had my ex-husband and what he did but it's things like we were on a night out once and there was a customer who was a lot older than me I was still in my I was in my mid-20s at that point so I was I was very young a long long time ago <laughs> but I think he was in his like 40s or 50s and he was like shimmying up to me putting constantly putting his hand on my leg but he was a customer so you just think oh mm. you know maybe you just kind of have to get on with it you don't want to piss them off because they they spend a lot of money with the organization and I'm here as part of the role as an account manager you know to make them feel welcome and it's a night out for them and then to be pinned up against a wall 
and and things like this and the way men sit on your desk and the way they behave with mm. you and I was like mm. wow but I never I never told anybody I didn't go to a manager I didn't go to HR mm. and I think that again comes down to trust or even the fact that you don't even know there's a policy and yeah. and like you were saying if there were policies if there were procedures in place and if there was a confidential way that people um could could go to somebody and feel like they were being heard and it isn't just then turning into another sexual harassment case for the business that they just want to shove under the carpet and not have yeah. you know not have it in the public domain and I think that's a fear of coming forward as well is that you're not going to be believed or it's just going to be like oh they made you uncomfortable so what get over it it's a yeah. bit like you know when yeah. you when you know there is racial prejudice mm-hmm. but you have no tangible mm-hmm. proof Mm-hmm. But unless you're a person of color or unless you are of a different sexuality or if you have a disability, you don't know what it's like to be discriminated against in the most subtle ways. Yeah. And yeah. I guess it's the same with with harassment and, and sexual harassment as well. And you also don't know people's you know, lived experience, the yeah. triggers for them. And that might trigger some PTSD that might, you know, it's yeah. it, this is incredibly serious. And also the onus shouldn't be put on the individual. So one, yeah, one of the things is I think there needs to be very clear no nonsense and this links in with anti-bullying and harassment please yeah. check out podcast episode 63 with chloe goff we talk about this in more detail um you know anti-bullying policies that work it all links in together you know it's not oh god we've got to do this now we've got to do this it's like, actually you can do it all in one go because it all links together um and it's really important so thinking about your mental health and well-being then manny you know the work that you do the things that you do and being a trustee and your own lived experience um and you you know you mentioned that actually it's really important to be mindful that you're on a you know that everyone who is a survivor is going through some journeys it's not always linear so what do you do to look after your mental health and what are your top three tips um so mine i love i do love working out I mean, I say I love it. I'm not fanatic. <laughs> like I haven't worked out <laughs> once this week. I think I'm just like, you know what? Forget it. It's fine. <laughs> I'll start tomorrow. Um, so I do work out. I have a, a personal trainer that I hire who sort of keeps me in line because <laughs> I need to be held accountable for my <laughs> physical exercise. <laughs> um, writing is my savior. Um, and the fact that I've managed to turn it into a business. And But it is also a double-edged sword with the writing because it is new when people are hiring me to write their books and they trust me to do this. And then imposter syndrome kicks in. So it's all a bit like, ah, oh my God. But clearly they hire me because they think I'm good. Um, I love writing, um, uh, exercise. And I guess just, I think having a counselor who I can trust Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what is helping and what I realized with this particular counselor is we are going through my entire life it isn't just about the thing that happened it's everything leading up to it my childhood what what I felt and finding those patterns so um, at later stage then you can identify what your triggers are because I'm terrible with relationships romantic uh, relationships friendships they come and go um so I have a real issue in trusting people and letting them in. And when I do let them in, I'm, I'm, I think my expectations are maybe too high or they let me down. And I think my top three tips are always put yourself first. Like just be a little mm-hmm. selfish and look after you. Mm-hmm. Because once you look after you and you're happy, everything in your life then just sort of slots in nicely, a bit like a jigsaw mm-hmm. and, and you at the centre. 
Um, and as South Asians, and as particularly as women, I think we find that incredibly hard to do, <laughs> to put ourselves first. And, it, mm. and even my mom and my sister have yelled at me and they're like, you know what, you need to put yourself first. Like, we're not even, we shouldn't be a priority, you know, if you're busy. And then the fact that they're now saying this just means that conversations have moved on and evolved. And I'm lucky that my family have evolved as well. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it's writing, counseling and working out. Don't worry, I do gorge on a lot of chocolate and, and snacks, <laughs> hence why I like to work out. <laughs> so I'm not like obsessive in terms of my diet, but working out is just amazing. It just gives you just so much energy and joy yeah. and a lot of pain. But hey, your, your bum looks great after those spots. <laughs> and you were the first person actually that said get a good counsellor. I've not, when I always ask all my guests that question. So thank you for saying that. That's brilliant. Um, and so Manny, I'm hoping people are listening to this. They want to, you know, work with you in some way, know more about Manny's Madness, uh, your writing business. And so if they do want to know more about you and the links will be in the show notes, but how would you like people to contact you? Um, the best way to contact me is probably via Twitter at Manny's Madness. Um, I'm taking a break from Instagram. I'll probably end up deleting it, but either Twitter or LinkedIn are my two um, favorite platforms. LinkedIn is the very professional money and Twitter is the very ranty money. So <laughs> you get the you get the two sides of money <laughs> and they're both just as entertaining. <laughs> Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for being a guest today, sharing your lived experience, your knowledge, your wisdom and your intersectional lens, which I found really, really valuable. Thank and you. don't forget... I've never had anyone use the word money and wisdom in the same sentence before, <laughs> so thank you so much for that, Leila. I feel honoured. No, absolutely. Um, and don't forget, there's links in the show notes. If you want to get involved, please get involved in the 16 Days of Action. Um, it's not too late. And don't forget, it is also 365, much like we say for Black History Month and all the other things we talk about. So this is the start of your journey and please take care everyone and we'll see you in the next episode thanks for listening to the diverse minds podcast don't forget to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you access your podcasts from you can also connect with me on facebook twitter and linkedin tune into next week's episode of the podcast where i'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion bye for now